Bibles up to 2 Timothy. Uh, we'll be in verses chapter 3 to start off with. And as the kids are going here, real quick, before we even pray, I just want to give you a... You may have heard uh, talking about this Jesse tree thing we're doing. That comes out of uh, the prophecy that out of the root will come a... Um, out of the root of Jesse will come a, a tree, reminding ourselves of David, of David's line and Jesus's... Uh, David? Jesus being in David's line. Wow. And uh, one of these things, too, why we're doing these are because on the Jesse tree, there will be uh, 24, 24, 25, what they're counting to Advent, all right? And what they are are um, circles, that you will, circles of wood that you'll put on the tree uh, with a verse, and there's a picture on the front to be, whether you're a family or even an individual working through, just reminding ourselves the Advent season is coming. And so this is a great tool to remind yourself of the passage of Scripture that point us to Christ and the promises that when Jesus came at Christmas were fulfilled, as well as a reminder of your kids, to your kids and to your grandkids or whatever, uh, these things of Christmas and all of that. And so again, if you want one of those, you want to be part of that as we put them together next week, you need to sign up for that. Because if you do not sign up for that, you will come and be found wanting that we don't have one for you. So um, let me pray and then let's look into the word. Dearly Father, as we just have been reminded that it is grace that is greater than anything. It is your grace. It reminds us of that great redemptive work of your son on the cross. That while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Today, as we take a pause and from the book of Genesis and look back at church history and see the importance of these truths, may we never... Become people that think that something new needs to replace the, the faith that has been passed down once for all. So may we be people of the word, people of the truth. The truth that has been from everlasting to everlasting. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You may ask yourself, what's the point of studying history? And some of you, if you were in class and you're studying history even as a student, you may go, all we do is study dates and everything else. So most of the people aren't excited about studying history, let alone now studying church history, because church history, yeah, there are a couple of wars in it, but honestly, a lot of church history was battles over ideas. A battle over this thought that would come in, and then the church would respond. Battles that would go back and forth over ideas, and many times we can say that stuff is boring, and it's not useful. And so, sadly, because we live in a day and age where history is rejected, we have people that say, you know what, we're just going to be organic, authentic, and it's just going to be me and my Bible, and off we're going to go. And I would encourage you, you spend a couple of days in the Bible, you'll find out real quick that, number one, you need to be in a church, and number two, there's a lot of church history that's very important, because guess what you're going to be studying in the Bible? Church history. All right, so all that being said, it's important for us to understand what happened and why things are important. Because sadly, if we neglect the study of the past, it will lead us, sadly, from, from the situation that we have now, which is going from compromise, is what is happening in the church instead of conviction. What we have in the church, sadly, is confusion instead of clarity, which leads us to entertainment instead of preaching. And as I said, as I'm going to say multiple times, the church, what it's facing right now, is not new ground. It seems like new ground because we are living now and we forget what has happened in the past, but there is nothing new under the sun. All of the challenges against God's word that are coming now, all they are are just rewrapped challenges that have been happened decade after decade after decade. 
It's just you add a new phrase to it and everybody thinks it's something new. And so what we need to do is we need to understand that October 31st coming up this week is a day in church history that was a very important day. And we'll get to why that day is important. But we need to start off with how did we even get to this sermon today? Why am I standing up in 2023 talking about something that happened in the 1300s through the 1500s? And like, what is going on here? Is it just Tim ran out of things to say? No, it's because these things are incredibly important. So after the fall of Roman Empire, when, when Rome fell, Europe is going to fall into a time period of called the Dark Ages, Middle Ages, Dark Ages time period which is a time of great famine, plague, and struggle. And during this time, the Roman Catholic Church is going to rise in its power, and it's going to rise also not only in its power, but its corruption and heresy. As, any, as we all know, power fully corrupts. And as Rome is getting more and more power here, the church is going to fall into not only is it going to be battling within itself, but incredible corruption and heresy is going to seep into every aspect of it. Yet one of the beautiful things about church history is in the darkest night shines the brightest stars. The morning star of the Reformation, which is not Martin Luther, I want to help you out. The morning star of the Reformation was born and this star would light the sky that would pave the way for many faithful followers. And spoiler alert, it's the top of your notes there. John Whitcliffe in the 1300s A.D., we will boldly proclaim A.D. for those of you who know that this is A.D., all right, and none of this PCE or anything else. This is, we mark history by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But John Whitcliffe is going to be a highly educated and wealthy businessman. And when you're highly educated, that means you can read. And if you're a businessman, then you have money. That means you can buy things. And what does he do? He buys a copy of the Bible. And he can read it. And as he's reading the copy of the Bible firsthand, he starts to see that the teachings that the church was doing are not backed up with what the Bible is saying. And he starts to say, this is wrong, what the church is telling us. And so his followers start to go out. That's why even to this day, we have Whitcliffe Translator Ministries. And what is their job to do is to translate the Bible into the language so people can understand what is going on. Not only that, but this fire that he ignited is going to burn. It's going to create a firestorm for the next 300 years of a strong desire to understand what the Bible actually says. And on the crust of this, in the 1300 A.D., you're going to get, basically 50 years later, is going to be the start of the Renaissance. And the Renaissance is going to come about because you had all of these Europeans looking at all of these Roman and Greek structure all around them, and they're going to say, we're not doing this anymore. We need to get back to this type of thinking and this type of civilization. And so the argument and the Latin phrase that they would say is, back to the source. Let's get back to what made these cultures strong because our culture stinks. And what would happen then is in the, even the church, the argument was let's get back to the source, back to the original source. And so what happens then is guess what people want to know? We don't want to know what the church teaches. We want to know what the source from what they're saying is taught. And God in his sovereignty, basically 100 years later, a guy named Gutenberg is going to invent the printing press. And when Gutenberg invents the printing press, now all of a sudden, it is like mass media is, can go. You can take a piece of paper and, trans, and, and make copy after copy after copy of it, and before you know it, it is all over the place. It would have been the internet of their day. You put it on, and boom, it went viral. This would, I don't know what you would call it when it hit the press, but it just hit the press, and away it went. 
And so this leads us to one day, an Augustinian monk, in 1517, as he is in Germany, and he is, was a uh, teacher, there was a local um, Catholic uh, um, church person that came into town selling indulgences. And this guy that was selling indulgences, an indulgence, if you don't know what an indulgence is, it is basically you can pay your way for sins you've committed or for future sins. So if you're going to sin, you throw a couple extra dollars in the plate, you're good to go for that next week. All right. Now that raises money, all right, but that's not biblical. All right, so if we wanted to build an addition and we just said, hey, every, you know, this next week, 100 bucks covers all of your sins, all right, and then you go live however you want, well, that might raise money, but that's not biblical. All right, and so Martin Luther writes 95 reasons on a, on a paper and publishes it and puts it on the door of the church. Here are 95 problems I have with the selling of indulgences. His students grab this. They send it off to the local printing press, and it just floods the town. And before you know it, this firestorm of church history begins. It was a call back to the sources. It was interesting, this push was get back to what God's word has to say. The Roman Catholic Church had strayed into heresy, and this heresy was destroying many people, and it was get back to the word of God. And so reformer after reformer, now if you want to help me understand a reformer, is a reformer is someone who sees something that is wrong and says we need to fix it. We need to reform this. A separatist sees something that is wrong and literally says we're out of town. All right. And so what reformers tried to do was try to say the Catholic Church is in error. Let's try to help reform the church and bring it back into what the word of God says. And during this time period, these reformers would fight and fight again to bring the Roman Catholic Church back into alignment with what the word of God said. They will find out later the Roman Catholic Church will not come back into order of what the Word of God says. Many of them will die martyrs' death. Many of them will be burned and killed, and their church is destroyed because the Roman Catholic Church had the power at that time. But during this time period, there were five teachings. There were five calls that would come out, this call to bring the church back into alignment. And these five teachings, I believe, are so foundational to keep us as a church now, and will keep us as a church for years to come out of heresy. And these five truths are so foundational that even the, the leadership of the church believes these are to be incorporated in everything we do. And I'll help you out real quick. Even though I know there's four points in the sermon, we're doing five, I've combined two. All right, so there are five, if you would call it alones, and I'll explain what they mean by this, or solas. There are five solas of the faith. And the first one to be scripture alone. The second one would be, we are saved by Christ alone, by grace alone, faith alone, to the glory of God alone. I'll help you out again. Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, to the glory of God alone. Each one of these, we believe, are so core that when we were designing a logo, we put five little segments around the logo. You'll see it when you come into the church. Those five little segments are to remind ourselves, this is the call of the church. That we are by Scripture alone, we are by faith alone, we are by Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. These things must hold us. And even as you go in, you see our logos, you came walking in, you'll see in the middle there is the Word of God is the center. And the Word of God is to be open, as we are to be a people of the Word of God. And out of the Word of God comes these three trees, reminding us, number one, that we are to be planted in the Word of God, growing from the Word of God, as well as we live and serve a triune Savior. 
And these things that we believe are so core that we literally place them into our logo to make sure we understand them. That is why in the past two years, we have taken time to literally go through sermon after sermon, each one of the five solas of the Reformation. I'm trying to summarize them all here again to remind ourselves the importance of it. That is why I've titled this, The Reformation and Why It Still Matters. So let's turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul here, in one of the last books that he is going to write, he's writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. That word competent also means fully complete. The Roman Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation was teaching that it was Scripture and tradition or scripture and church teaching, are equal. So if the church taught it, it must be equal with scripture. And the problem with that is, the reformers said, no, the church has taught wrong. The church is in error. God's word is not. It is not, these are not co-equal. One is the truth, the other one can fall into error, because we know to err is human. But God's word is not from humans, it is from him. So the reformers would cry out, no, it's the Bible alone is our faith and practice. Man does not have the ability to tell us what the Bible says is wrong is right. It is what the Bible says in the Bible alone. We do not need to look at the church teachings to correct the Bible. The church teachings are only correct as they come from the Word of God. This does not mean the church cannot teach, but the church's standard for its teaching is the Word of God. The church better be teaching. The church better be saying, here's the truth from God's word, and here is how it applies to today. All right? And, and making it the word of God applicable in different situations, so the church ought to be teaching, but its standard is the word of God. All scripture is given and is useful to make a man complete. All scripture is given to make a man complete, equipped for every good work. Again, these, these, these things can be in, in, in our struggle right now. As we've been working through on Monday night's Christianity and liberalism, we even talked about the concept that sadly in many liberal denominations, they really like the New Testament as if the New Testament is somehow more inspired. And so we like the teachings of Jesus as, as we talked about it. We like the red letters of the Bible as if they carry more significance than anything else. But if we understand all of the Bible, all of Scripture is God-breathed. So all of Scripture literally is from Him. So literally, if you want to put it so many words, all of your Bible should be read, because it is all from Him. And as we think through these things, as we understand them, if we're not careful, we can start thinking that there are certain aspects of Scripture that carry with it more authority than others, but yet the Word of God is very clear. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and all Scripture is profitable, and all Scripture, and it just keeps going over and over and over again. There is not one part of Scripture that we say, well, you don't need to follow that part. It is not applicable today. No, all Scripture is. Scripture alone is understood, and it demands that the church submit to the Word of God. When we, as a body of believers, say that we, one of our core elements of it is that we believe in Scripture alone, that must mean then we do not believe in leadership alone. We do not believe in leadership plus the Bible. We believe in what Scripture says. And then the leadership of the church is held accountable to then what Scripture says. The preacher is not the source of the truth. The Word of God is the source. 
John Calvin, in one of his lectures, reminded his students the message of Scripture from the pulpit. The message of Scripture from the pulpit is sovereign. Sovereign over the preacher and over the people. When the Word of God is spoken from the pulpit, the preacher is to be under the Word of God as well as the people that are there. When the preacher enters the pulpit, they are only just a delivery boy, delivering what God's words has to say. And what brought about great revival after revival after revival in the Reformation was man after man standing in the pulpit preaching the Word of God in all of its fullness. We try not to do things by happenstance around here. Sometimes it just does happen. But there are certain things we try to do with importance. All right, there's a reason why in front of us is the Word of God open for you in a language you understand. Hopefully if you understand English. It is literally in front of you there. It is because you are to also, even if you forgot your Bible, you can check to see if the guy up here is explaining to you what it literally says. Because we do this for a reason. And notice it's not even chained. You could take it home if you want and study it on your own. Because we want you to be people of the Word of God because we, in the leadership here, we as members of CBC are, have to be and must be submitted to the Word of God. One of the reasons why we take strongly here faithful preaching week in and week out, verse by verse, is because we believe that there is no truth of God that should be overstepped. Now I want to pause here for a moment. We are working through Genesis, all right? It's taken us a little bit of time, all right? And I just want to help you out. Yes, there are times we have stepped over some things. Like we did three sermons on Genesis 1-1. We could have done about five or six about everything that was there, all right? But for sake of time and going on, we need to move out of Genesis 1-1 to get the whole concept. There are times where we move on. Every time I sit down with the Word of God and I prepare a sermon, there are so many things I have to cut out. You only get what is like 30% of what we've, I've been studying all week because the Word of God is so deep and it is so wide. All right. So when you go, well, he didn't talk about that topic, he's going to say, well, we, we, want it, we have to sleep sometime. All right. Some of you choose during the service, but we all have to sleep sometime. All right. And in those moments there, we have to say, for sake of moving on, we need to move on through these things. That is why I encourage you to study them on your own as well, because there's, the depth of Scripture is so incredibly rich. But what happened during the Reformation when the Word of God was opened, sacred cow after sacred cow had been slaughtered that the Roman Catholic Church had made. I think it's really interesting that Martin Luther in one of his lectures stood up and said, all that has departed from Scripture is to be cursed. If you depart from Scripture, it is to be cursed. He goes on to say, I desire to be as well known in hell as I am in heaven. Because when we preach the word of God, we are not only doing battle with the saint, we are doing battle with error as well. Every generation we need men, godly, and I'm going to call them biblically masculine men, standing for the truth of the word of God. We need to have men of conviction, men willing to stand in the church pulpit and in the public square and then says, thus says the Lord. Men who will read the word of God and obey it. Men who will love their wives and children enough to teach them the truth about the word of God. Men who will work hard, getting up every day to the glory and honor of God. Men who are willing to lay down their lives for the truth. But sadly... As I listen over and over and over again to... Men that I would say that were pastors. I listen to some of these men 
And it feels like this quote of Stephen Lawson, which he said, God, give us men that are not tripping over their skirt to get into the pulpit, who stand up and say, we need, this is what I have felt when I talk about this passage. When I read this passage, it makes me feel, I could care less how that man feels. I want to hear what the word of God says and how it impacts our lives. You don't want to hear my feelings. You want to hear the word of God. So I should not get up any Sunday and say, here's how the way this makes me feel. I should say, here's the truth of God, and it makes us convicted and changed. The question in front of us always of every generation is this. If a man-eating lion were let loose in this church, would it starve to death? I want to look at two men who stood firm on the truth of Scripture alone, and they also stood firm in Christ alone. Acts chapter 4. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, we have Peter and John. And in Acts chapter 4, let's, let's remind ourselves who these guys were. Remember, Peter was the guy that said, Lord, I'm going to follow you to the, to the end no matter what. And what do we find out? The moment everything was put in front of him, what did he do? He denied Christ, not once, not twice, but three times. And he even swore, I do not know this man. John, who was, stood there with the disciples, when the time came, he fled as well. Now these guys who ran at the slightest thing in front of them are now walking into the temple and they heal a man. We'll start off in verse 7. Listen to these guys. And when they set them in the midst, they inquired. This is standing before all of the powers of that day. The scribes, the elders, the rulers of Jerusalem, the high priest, everybody is there. Even the priestly family are there. So these are all the ones that these guys ran from in fear. And, it, and they asked these two, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you. Notice this, a guy who was scared to death now says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, that has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no, one under he- no other name under heaven given among men, whereby ye must be saved. Now in verse 13, now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, what did they do? They knew they were uneducated men, but where did their boldness come from? They recognized they had been with Jesus. That is why the next call of the Reformation was salvation in Christ and Christ alone. The Roman Catholic Church had said, no, salvation is not in Christ. It is in Christ, but also the church. You must be a member of the church. You must be part of the church. You must do all the things the church says and does. No, the Reformer said, no, it is Christ and Christ alone. Here we see a group of two men as we call them, biblically masculine men standing on the truth, not standing in their own boldness, but standing on the boldness of the truth of God's Word and what God had done. The message of the truth, they're not apologizing for it. Notice they didn't try to make the gospel call relevant to the people that were speaking there. With boldness they stood and they proclaimed that salvation is in Jesus and Jesus And is it an interesting too? 
They did not say, this is how you merit your salvation. This is how you earn your salvation. They looked to the man and said, this is Jesus, the stone that the builders rejected. And he is the one where salvation is found. Which brings us to not only do we believe in Scripture alone, because Scripture alone is our only faith and practice, is what leads us to the belief that it is by Christ alone, and then we get to the concept that it is by salvation, is by grace and faith alone. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Here again, Paul is writing, and he reminds the people of Ephesus, And he says, and you were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passage of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He paints a pretty realistic picture for us. You were a bunch of sinners. Not only were you a bunch of sinners, you were dead in your transgressions of sin. You could not merit what was going to happen. There was no way you could make yourself good enough or well enough to be saved. Because notice what we have here. You have dead in verses 1 through 3. Now in verse 4 we have, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us even, and he reminds him, even when you were dead, he made you alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The reason, what what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. By grace you have been saved. Because at one time there was no way of you making yourself alive. You were dead, He made you alive, and not only did He make you alive in verse 6, but raised you up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable richness of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why is He so kind? Is because we do not deserve it. Why is He so gracious? Because we do not deserve it. Literally, His grace in verse 7 is immeasurable. Because your sin was so vile, His grace is so immeasurable. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing, and I would argue that this is referring back to not only grace, but faith as well. Not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship. Literally, that idea of workmanship is what He has created. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The call of the, of the Reformation was this. The Catholic Church had said, you are saved by your meritous efforts. So they gave you sacraments or sacred things to do, and they gave you a list of them. And so the Catholic Church said, if you keep doing these things, this is what will keep you saved. One of them was the communion table, where the Roman Catholic Church taught that the communion table, as you continue to take communion, that is what keeps you saved. If you stop taking communion, you stop being saved because one of the works you do is to take communion. The reformers said, no, these are just symbols given to us by God to remember the sacrifice. These are symbols of grace, not a means to saving grace. And so the massive issue there was, what is the communion table all about? And the reformers said, it's all about pointing us to Christ. And there's no meritous work in taking communion. The reformers also said it is by faith alone and by grace alone. The faith in Jesus Christ is what saved you, not your works. 
But the Roman Catholic Church was telling people, no, it is more, you need to work your way into salvation. You need to do this. And they started listening all the way from baptism as a baby, all the way leading, all the way till now. And the Reformers said that is not found anywhere in Scripture alone. Yes, that is found in church teaching, but church teaching must come under the authority of who? Scripture. And so if it's not in Scripture, it should not be in church teaching. That's about as clear as you can make it, the Reformers would call. Now the problem is the church was starting to lose its power then because people were starting to read the Word of God and they were starting to say to the church, you're wrong. And the challenge then came at the end of the day was who was going to have the power? Where would the power be? And while this was all moving on, came to our final sola. The final sola of it all is found in Romans 11. Now this sola here, you're not going to have, this is not going to be debated amongst the church, but in the church world, it was glory be to the church. It was glory be to the fathers, and fathers as in like the Pope and all of the papacy and everything else. It was him and him alone almost do we worship. But it is very interesting, Paul again in Romans 11, as he's getting finished writing about the great salvation that God has lavished upon man, that man, while he was a sinner, in sin, God, in his great grace, lavished this gospel truth, this salvation, not just on the Jewish people, but also on the Gentiles as well, that all who would place their faith and trust in him would have redemption. Romans eleven thirty three, Paul, at the end of writing about all oh, the great riches of God, and his salvation, he says, Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That last part there of Romans 11 is one of the I would call it one of the most basic truths that was taught in the Reformation, that they believed that man is responsible to God and God alone, to him be the glory. The only response when we understand that God in his, in his great grace gave us the word of God, that God in his great grace came and saved us, that God through faith alone, by grace alone, are we saved, that he who began a good work in us will complete it to the end. It is only through those, and that's the only reason why, it is God who gets the glory in all things. It's very interesting. When we went, we went back to the struggles of the Reformation, one of the struggles of the Reformation was this. Because of the way Europe was being run, work ethic was at an all-time low. It's a little interesting where we're at now from a couple of years ago. We would argue even as America, our work ethic is at an all-time low. And the answer to it was actually what woke everybody up was the last sola that you're working to the glory and honor of God. You're not working to the glory and honor of your boss or anything else. You work hard because you're working to the glory and honor of God. They would look at passages of Scripture, whether therefore you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so they were saying, even if I don't get a raise, even if no one appreciates me as much as I appreciate myself, even if and you just fill in the blank, you're doing it for the glory and honor of God, not for the praise of, and we fill in the blank, because we work in a day and age where we have created a bunch of snowflakes who think that their boss has to be the one that has to appreciate them. Your boss will never appreciate you. I'll just throw that out to you. 
as much as you think you need to be appreciated. All right? But that's not our sticking point. What is our point? Whether you are underappreciated, which we all just realize what we all are, right? Our appreciation is found when we give God the glory, because when we give God the glory, we're saying that there's nothing good in me. The sheer fact I was able to do anything today is because in him I live and I move and I have my being. He gave me the breath. He gave me the life. To him be glory. That is how we are to live. That is how we are to work. Students, that is how you're to do your homework. That's how you're to do all that you do to the glory and honor of God. Even if you're in a group project and you know you're all going to get the same grade, what do you do? You work as hard as you can for the glory and honor of God. And this is the thing that's swept across Europe that for a brief moment in time gave strong work ethic. But the further we get away from these things, the further we get away of seeing the huge picture. It's because sadly, most of the Bibles across Europe have gone like this and most of the churches have become museums. We're not too far from that as a culture in America. We may be there already. But it is because of our failure to have the Word of God open in our own personal lives to study that we have been so compromised and so quickly overrun by absolute error. We must be people of the Word. And I will say that over and over and over again until you get that through our thick little heads, all of us, right? Because it is easy to lean on our own understanding, isn't it? But we must trust in Him and Him alone. Now, as we're wrapping this up and we ask ourselves, what did we learn today? I pray that, be honest with you, that most of you felt like this was review. <laughs> because I want it to be review. I want you to go, we've heard that before. Because I really, truly do believe these five core teachings must hold us here at CBC. For those of you who are new, I want you to be hear these so many times that you can repeat them over and over and over. And I'll even let you do it alone, all right, as you repeat them alone, all right? Because I, I, I know strongly that these are the things that will anchor us. Because by God's grace, as we sit down in leadership, here are the things we want to do. We want to make it very, very, very difficult for people to take what we have taught here and to try to step over it. What we want someone to do, if they want to take the church into heresy, we want them to have to say we have to throw it all out and start anew because we have made it such a way that we're saying this is how we stand and this is where we stand. Do you following that? We want to say you have to make it impossible for you to use anything that we've written to try to tweak it and twist it into heresy. And I would argue the same way in your own life. Do you know what you believe and why you believe it and are you willing to stand for it? Let come what may. The reformers did and they gave us faithful men that God has used to encourage us on to what does it mean to be a student of the word of God and to study it in and alone. I love the Reformers. I love what they had to teach us. I love how they stood in the gap and made a difference in the world around us. And I pray that we will be like that generation as well. These days that the church are facing are not new days. They're new to us. God's word will not fail. It will persevere. And it has persevered. We need to be people of it in order to persevere. Let me pray. Dear Holy Father. Thank you for moments like this where we get to see again the need to be people that follow you in all of what the Word of God has to say. Help us now. Remind us again daily of the importance of the faith once given. 
once given, but given in a way that is to be passed down from generation to generation. May we be men and women of the faith, passing it on to the next generation. We ask these things in your son's name we pray. Amen.